0: Hey, what's up? Welcome to newsletter number 10, podcast episode number 10 from the Thinking Tools podcast from Sense of Mind. Now, as you might know, on this podcast, every week we have a fact, a happiness or productivity tip, a book recommendation, a quote from that book, and my thoughts about life, culture, or current events. Now, this week um, and every week, uh, the episode is going to center on a book. On a book that I've been reading um, and I'm going to extract a fact from that and a quote and a tip and um, going to kind of try to give you a holistic picture of the book Um, and it's all aimed at expanding your knowledge of the human brain so um, this is all about kind of branching out from what I usually do on sense of mind which is do really specific videos about the brain and neuroscience, and to give you kind of a, a broader view of these topics um, from the words of experts and and their writings. Uh, this episode is all about cognitive control in the brain, and it focuses on a fantastic 2020 book on the subject, which is called On Task, How Our Brains Get Things Done, by Dr. David Batter of uh, Brown University. But first, I just have a few announcements about the channel. So finally, after weeks of working on them, I am finally done with a set of videos about serotonin in the brain. Now, you might recall a while ago that I came out with a video on serotonin syndrome, um, which is a, a medical condition that people can develop after taking drugs that enhance or increase the amount of serotonin in the brain to dangerous levels. Um, But these videos, this this new set of videos, are all about how serotonin functions in the brain um, under normal conditions. And I kind of broke it up into four different topics that'll be coming out um, one a week starting this week. Um, And it'll be about the serotonin receptors. And then another will be about um, the anatomy of the serotonin system in the brain, the uh, synthesis and some of the the, uh, cognitive outcomes of not being able to synthesize serotonin in the brain. And then finally, a um, theory, a kind of hypothesis that brings an overarching framework to um, what serotonin does in the brain because, as you'll find out, it's kind of an enigmatic multifunction molecule. So I just want to put those on your radar and hope you'll check those out. Now with these these videos, these new videos, um, I do want to mention that there's, there's a lot more in the way of visuals for these. And um, they're also a lot shorter than our typical neuroscience course videos. And I'm trying that out because I think that uh, providing more visuals as well as making the content more focused on a single subject will allow you, the viewer, to kind of walk away with more knowledge and to not feel confused or overwhelmed by the amount of information and then to also just see it play out in front of you. Um, that's what the visuals will be doing. So anyway, that's just some stuff that I wanted to you know, put on your radar and again hope you'll check it out. Now I think I'm I'm thinking that many of you who are listening to this or at least who are watching those videos are people, um, students really who are in neuroscience or psychology courses or people who are just really interested in the brain and maybe doing their own sort of self-education program. And I, I really want to, you to know that I'm aiming to provide really accurate neuroscience content, really up-to-date stuff, um, but that doesn't get way too technical. So I want it to be kind of on the level of what you might encounter in a college course, or at least a really advanced high school course. But again, these videos are going to be um, shorter than some of the others that I put out. They're more like 15 minutes instead of 30 minutes. So anyway, uh, I don't want to go on too long about that, but I just wanted to let you know. And again, hope you'll check them out. All right, so that's enough jibber jabber. Let's get to this week's fact which is about why multitasking is usually ineffective. So why do people multitask? One answer is that we sometimes fall for the illusion that it will allow us to get more done when in reality it will just slow us down on both the tasks. In a minute, I'll explain a neuroscientific theory about why multitasking is likely to lead to those kinds of decrements. But first, I want to describe a second more subtle reason for multitasking that I've fallen into and which I suspect many other people have too. That is, we sometimes multitask because the main task we're trying to complete is either difficult, tedious, or otherwise aversive. So to compensate for that reduction in joy, we might do something that we think will boost our happiness. So if we're doing calculus problems, but we don't really like math, we might turn on a TV show or podcast in the background. Yet, this not only distracts us from the aversive feelings associated with the math problems, but also from the math problems themselves. So, okay, hold on. These issues, notwithstanding, when we get to today's productivity tip, I'll explain some unique conditions that, if met, do allow us to multitask effectively. For now, however, let's see why the human brain has so much difficulty with doing more than one thing at once. In his book, On Task, How Our Brain Gets Things Done, the neuroscientist David Bowder of Brown University explains that there are bottlenecks in the brain's processing streams that keep us from efficiently doing more than one thing at a time. And it starts with attention. See, in the brain, attention is basically a process of amplifying the activity of some neural circuits while dampening the activity of others. So as you hear my voice, the neurons in your brain responsible for processing my words have their activity preferentially enhanced as compared to anything else you could be hearing at this moment. So for example, maybe you're outside and there are sounds of birds chirping or traffic zooming by, and in which case your brain is dampening the activity of those neurons that are registering and processing those sounds. But they're enhancing the processing of my words that you're hearing. So that example illustrates something important. We can actually process multiple streams of information at the same time, because otherwise, it would be pretty much impossible to register, you know, that ambulance siren that's blaring down the street or those birds chirping while listening to my voice. So the key thing to understand is that this kind of parallel processing is severely limited and will inevitably pay attention to one task more than the other. Now, that's because, as argued by cognitive scientists Bob Desimone and John Duncan, and reviewed by Bader, these separate information streams will at some point require overlapping populations of neurons to properly process them. In other words, you can't simultaneously focus on the details of the sounds of the birds chirping while also fully processing this sentence because these two tasks both involve auditory processing using some of the very same populations of neurons. And the more similar the tasks, the more difficult this becomes. So just try it, try it. And to see what I mean, just try listening to another podcast while you're listening to this one at the same time. I mean, it's very difficult to have kind of any understanding of what's happening in either stream. Still, even with fairly different tasks, like watching TV and doing the dishes, we're still likely to miss something on the show or on the dish, and the problem only gets worse with tasks we're less familiar with. This is partly because, in almost any task, we are drawing on the brain regions involved in working memory and cognitive control more generally. Now, task switching—that's the close cousin of multitasking, where we basically switch back and forth from one task to the other—is also undesirable and ineffective because there's a neurocognitive cost to doing this. Still, there are cases where we can effectively and efficiently multitask, even if they're relatively few and far between. And that leads me to this week's tip. So, number two, part two of this episode is the productivity tip. And this week, it's about that you should not multitask unless two very unique and crucial conditions are met. So, I'll explain those in just a second. Okay, but at this point, you may be thinking something like, All right, yeah, that totally makes sense. But there are definitely times when you're able to multitask, such as when you exercise and listen to a podcast, for example. You might even disagree with me about watching TV and doing the dishes. And the reality is, you're probably right. Yet, that's not because you're generally good at multitasking, but more likely it's because you have trained one or both of these abilities to the point that it is essentially automatic. For me, exercising, showering, and indeed doing the dishes can be combined with listening to a podcast or audiobook And I really don't notice a big decrement in my ability to do either thing, nor in the speed with which I accomplish them. But that wasn't always the case. See, years ago, when I first started listening to audiobooks, I found it extremely difficult to do anything except maybe go for a leisurely walk. So, for example, if I tried to lift weights at the same time, I would inevitably find myself hitting the go back 30 seconds button again and again because I'd forgotten what they were saying. And even now, after years of training these tasks together, I know that if I were to sit in a dark room and do nothing but listen to the audiobook, I would almost certainly be able to remember a lot more of it later. So the tip this week is to avoid multitasking as much as possible. Turn off the notifications on your phone, Close the door to your office, wear earplugs, close your blinds. Just do whatever helps you to focus all of your brain's amazing processing power on the task at hand. The return on that kind of focused work is always incredible. Okay, but still, uh, the second part of this tip is that if you do want to multitask, make sure that two conditions are met before you even attempt it. First, make sure that at least one of the two tasks is almost entirely automatic. Second, choose tasks that do not compete for neural resources. For example, if you're a runner, you probably don't need to think much about the process of running, especially if you're like me and you do the same routes over and over again. So taking that familiar running route would be a good time to listen to the Thinking Tools podcast, for example. But on the other hand, say you're not much of a runner and you find yourself in a new city wanting to explore it on foot, so you decide to take a run. In this case, it may be very difficult to listen to this podcast because you will probably be preoccupied with making sure you're on the right route, not to mention that you have a desire to really take in your surroundings and get a feel for the environment. So in that case, listening to music might be a much easier uh, sort of multitask thing, because, well, you don't really care if you miss a whole song or two, and because the neural processing required for listening to music pretty much doesn't interfere with the wayfinding as when you're running or enjoying the sights around you. All right, so now that we've discussed a couple of the ideas in the book, um, let's move to this week's book recommendation, which, of course, is this book, On Task, uh, How Our Brains Get Things Done by David Batter. Um, And yes, that is how you pronounce his name. Um, (laughs) But anyway, I I just love this book. Um, It's really, really well written. And one thing that's really unique about it before we get to um, the rest of this sort of recommendation is there's not a lot of pictures in this book. And as an audiobook listener, I really appreciate that. Then, um, just someone who, who really enjoys writing. I mean, it's actually really impressive to me when an author can get away with not uh, having a lot of visuals because I think it shows that they're able to really explain the topics in clear language. And that is definitely what I found in this book. So anyway... Um, I'm going to get to kind of the rest of the review. Okay, so this book focuses on what is called cognitive control or executive function, Uh, though apparently this latter term has fallen out of favor with cognitive scientists, so they use cognitive control. But anyway, uh, the author, David Batter, explains that cognitive control is all about using our knowledge to carry out intelligent actions on the basis of that knowledge. He shows that the frontal lobes of the brain are very important in this process, especially the front of the frontal cortex, the prefrontal cortex, or PFC. Uh, And he also points out that it's not merely the PFC, but a whole network of uh, regions involved in cognitive control, including those in the parietal lobes and some others. Um, He also discusses the evolution of cognitive control in Homo sapiens, as well as the development of these abilities from our infancy to adulthood. He explains how our brains get things done by creating hierarchies of big tasks broken into small tasks, which are broken into even smaller tasks, all the way down to the individual muscle movements of a single task. He also dives into topics like motivation and its relation to mental effort, multitasking and its discontents, the mechanisms behind how our brain stops us from taking actions or recalling memories, um, why human memory is so different than computer memory, and he even addresses why it's been so difficult to motivate people to take action on climate change despite their knowing about its effects. Now, I have to say, Batter is, in my humble opinion, an incredibly clear and coherent writer, and he has an undeniable mastery of the material. A recent critical review of the book by another cognitive scientist, Masood Hussein of Oxford University, said that his only gripe with the book was that it focused too heavily on working memory, uh, which may have presented a slightly skewed view of the field. But otherwise, he really didn't have anything negative to say, which is pretty impressive for a book of this scope and, and length. Um, unlike some books, this one actually answers the question posed by its subtitle, which is, of course, how our brains get things done. It gives a clear and satisfying set of answers to that, and I strongly recommend it for anyone interested in that question or anyone who wants to just expand their understanding of the brain. And so this finally brings me to part four of this newsletter, which is the quote. It says, The problem of cognitive control is one of bridging the gap from knowledge to action in a complex world. That's from David Bader from this book. I think that we often take for granted the false idea that correct action follows from proper knowledge. But the cases of frontal lobe patients make plain the falsity of that idea. Because people with damaged frontal lobes often know what they should do and they're able to physically do it, yet they end up not doing that thing because they can't link action with knowledge in an effective way. See, there are brain networks for knowledge, there are brain networks for action, and others for bridging the gap between the two. Understanding that can help you to change bad habits to take the actions you know are important but which you resist doing, and for having compassion for those people whose cognitive control systems are still maturing, like children. See, our brains determine what we do, and they determine what choices we can make. So training our control systems will enhance our ability to do things, or, as Batter puts it, to get things done that matter. And finally, this brings me to part five of today's episode my thoughts, and today I'm thinking about mindfulness and cognitive control. I meditate every day. I used to do it for 30 minutes every morning, but recently I've switched back to my old habit of doing the daily 10-minute guided meditation from the Waking Up app, which was developed by neuroscientist and expert meditator Sam Harris. In my definition, mindfulness is the simple act of observing one's moment-to-moment experience and not doing anything in particular, including not becoming distracted by any thoughts or perceptions. See, Sam Harris often says at the beginning of every meditation that, quote, there's nothing you need to think about right now. He emphasizes that while we should not try to get rid of thoughts, we should not let them distract us from pure observation of the present moment. So while mindfulness employs cognitive control, It's essentially aimed at not using any other neural resources. The only thing you're doing is perceiving, both sensations and thoughts, and not getting carried away by them. Importantly, this results in increased cognitive control, at least according to two different studies using eight-week mindfulness programs, which I've linked below in the description. Now, I bring this up because it can be tempting to think that while meditating, we're just wasting time. After all, as Harris says, you're not doing anything in particular. But he also says that you're simply ceasing to be distracted. And that is the crucial point. Mindfulness allows us to build our powers of focus, of cognitive control, in order to be less distracted and to live more fully in the moment. And in my experience, whenever I pay attention to the task at hand, when I absorb myself in what I'm doing, and when I can cease to be distracted, I end up enjoying my life a whole lot more. All right, well, that does it for this episode. But before you go, I just want to ask you to subscribe to the podcast and give this episode a five-star rating. Or if you're on YouTube, that is if you're subscribed to the free newsletter that gives you access to the video versions of these episodes by going to senseofmindshow.com slash newsletter, Please give this video a like and make sure you're subscribed to the channel. As always, thank you so much for your support and for checking out this episode of the Thinking Tools podcast. Sense of Mind is brought to you by the Diamond Mind Foundation. And this video and podcast episode was written and produced by me, Andrew Cooper Sansone. Thanks again. I'll catch you next time.